This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm stepping away from hosting duties to bring you a discussion from the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture. It focuses on the Star Wars universe and its religious and spiritual influences and explorations. David Goodwin is the assistant director at the center, and he moderated the Jedi and Jesuits panel discussion. His guests are Jack Jenkins with Religion News Service, Father Jim McDermott with American Magazine, and Dr. Catherine Reckless, Associate Professor in Fordham's Theology Department. The next voice you'll hear is David Goodwin. I just want to share a quote with you from George Lucas. In 1999, June 1999, he sat down with Bill Moore to talk about Star Wars and his vision and creation of the series. And George Lucas went on, go, went on to say that he, quote, put the force into the movies in order to try to awaken a certain kind of spirituality in young people, end quote. And he went on to say, quote, I hope that doesn't end up being the course that this whole thing, that being Star Wars, takes. Because I think that there's definitely a place for organized religion, and it's very important part of the social fabric. I would hate to find ourselves in a completely secular world where entertainment was passing for some kind of religious experience, end quote. Do you think he achieved those goals? One, that Star Wars awakened this new sense of spirituality in people, uh, but also that it didn't become quasi-religious. Like, is, the question is either, did Star Wars contribute to the decline of institutional religion? I think, no, that's too simplistic. Um, there's like way too many other things that are contributing to that. Does Star Wars completely take the place of institutional religion, um, no, I don't think it, it really does that either. Um, but I, I am super interested in the question of what Lucas thought a myth was and how he thought a film could operate as a myth and how that myth is changing, like how it's evolving and maybe asking different things of the audience now than it did in 1976 when he was playing with this archetype of the mythological hero. So, yeah, I want to talk about all those things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I was sort of touched by the quote because I, 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 too, I was very surprised that those were part of his reflections. Um, I think in part because I feel like what Star Wars seems to do for a lot of people is it provides a spiritual experience. And, and as a result, whether that leads people to one form or another of institutionalized religion, I feel like it definitely raises questions about like what 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 did just happen to me? What did I just watch? And I I don't know. I would love to, I would love to uh, see Kara do a study of the effects of, of of a movie like Star Wars on people's sort of willingness to consider institutionalized religion. The other reason I'm really surprised by the quote, uh, speaking to Catherine's point in a way, once you get to the prequels, they seem to me a pretty strong critique of organized religion and a potent one in some ways. So, yeah, I mean, I was sort of reveling in, in the fact that this order that in the first three movies we, we sort of discover as this sort of very spiritual, interesting, mysterious group, then when you get to the bureaucracy, is a nightmare, and it's sort of cold <laughs> and willing to take children from their parents and not liberate their parents when you liberate the children and things like that. Um, it was shocking, and I don't know if that's, that's George, if he was aware that he was doing that, or if he thought, well, this is religion and this is kind of how, part of how it works, but uh, yeah. That's, mm. So I just want to step back from Star Wars, specifically for a moment, and talk about science fiction in general. And sci-fi 
uh, really since it was a genre, whether in fic novels or in film, has probed big, difficult, even unanswerable questions. Reality, death, God. Um, and, uh, you know, think The Matrix, think Black Mirror, think Twilight Zone, think Star Wars. Why might that be? Do you think we need this cover of science fiction to explore and grapple with these difficult questions? I mean, why is science fiction's sort of fertile ground for such philosophical, theological wranglings? Well, okay, I'll go for I guess I have to go first sometime. Um, I mean, I guess, like, the sociologist of religion in me would say, yeah, of course, like, you have to have, I mean, you, you don't have anything going in a society without stories, right? It's um, the, the de- need to, ex- to give what, right, a sociologist say, legitimation, right, an explanation for how things work, what things are, what things mean, right, is, is core to how humans organize themselves into collectives and make sense of themselves. And, and when a story really works, or when it works in a society, it, it makes something about the structures or orders of that society seem really real, right, see, and to the people in it. And it makes it um, seem real to them, and, and it matches, it kind of creates an insideness that matches the outsideness. Um, and so I think, I mean, I think this is, this is integral to like what Lucas thought he was up to, at least in the 70s. Right? Was it was a sense that, um, that there was a time when we shared common stories that come, let's say, from more traditional religious traditions, and more people were united by them, and... They, made, they did this work, right? They, they gave, um, they shaped inner lives to match outer lives uh, to the, the reality of the world. And that, that wasn't happening, right? That, the sense that that had broken apart in the 60s and 70s. And so his attraction to this idea of the myth as doing this and his, his almost an experiment to see could he write a myth. And I would say that that, that right, the sci-fi genre has always like kind of, um, pl- like, Scholars of religion, like myself and others, we love this stuff, right? It's so because you can't help but see parallels right, to the kinds of world building and explanatory power that religious traditions right, have also cultivated in different ways. Right there, I, and I think a lot of it is intentional on the part of sci-fi pop culture creators. Right, they know what they're doing. Right, they they are actively trying to activate that part. Um, and I, so I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, I think it's, it's interesting to me. I mean, I personally don't buy at all Joseph Campbell's theory. Like, I think, I mean, I study colonialism. That is just a product of colonialism in my mind. And it's a, right, a desire to, like, find what's lacking in the Western, dry, rational, arid world of the Western mind to find in some other primitive land, right, in uh, pieces of mythology the answer to that problem, like to save ourselves by looking at these um, other sources. So I don't really buy that, but I also think Lucas made a real myth, like a real myth, a myth that shapes people's inner dispositions and organizes the, the way they feel and think and are motivated to act in the world. Um, so that's why I'm actually interested in how that myth has changed. I think we're way beyond Joseph Campbell now, right, in the Star Wars world. Like, I think it has just exploded beyond the Joseph Campbell model of the, the if you don't know this model, like the, the hero who sets out on a quest um, of kind of spiritual self-discovery and then so doing is able to like reinvigorate his or her 
society through a kind of spiritual initiation and grappling, which becomes both an identity of self and kind of communal renewal. I think we're really, I think we've shot beyond that. It was, I find, super interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'll just, to add to that, really, I would really love to hear more about the critique of Joseph Campbell because it is, it just, I mean, I don't know if people know what we're talking about when we say that in terms of, like, Joseph Campbell was the mentor of George Lucas, hero of a thousand faces, like, George Lucas referred to him as his mentor. And so apparently that was instrumental in how he formed Star Wars. Um, but like the premise of Joseph Campbell was like these stories are, you know, Harry Potter, Star Wars, um, and Lord of the Rings all follow similar themes here. And they're like, these are endemic to all of humanity, which is false. Like you just like, look at other myths that other societies have put together and they're clearly not following the same trope. Um, which I feel like The Last Jedi is like a very systemic like heck no to that over and over and over again. But, um, I'll also note that the, you know, what I find really interesting about, like you said, about the Star Wars universe since then, is it's kind of like folded in on itself, where it's become its own critique of its own, the narrative that supposedly raised Lucas to where he was. But to your original question about science fiction, I will say on a practical level, one of the reasons I think that science fiction becomes this way that we can explore um, deeper theological and ideological and political questions is practically because um, it, it, if you tell a story, for instance, set in the Deep South, well, people are going to have a very specific perception of what belongs in the Deep South. If you set it in northern Minnesota, they're going to ask a whole lot of questions about the accents, right? But if you invent a whole other world, or you invent a future in which you set the terms of that future, you're allowed to kind of craft the question of that, that is asked in the course of that story more specifically. It's more of a vacuum. Now, interestingly, once you create that universe and you try to add more things to it, people like me say, well, you're breaking the canon there. Like, you said that one thing, but Wookiees don't talk like that. Um, but, but I think that's, that's my, my guess as to why science fiction often becomes this method through which we're able to explore deeper questions is because we don't have to get bogged. It's easier to suspend our disbelief when they already have lightsabers and are flying through space with sound interesting. I, I, I'm listening to you guys and thinking that in terms of science fiction, you know, science fiction, uh, David, as you're asking, you know, usually it has some sort of social critique. That's part of the what makes it interesting. But if I look at the trilogies, right? So the first trilogy, I would say, is not that kind of science fiction at all. It's, it's really, it is myth-making, and it doesn't seem at all interested, really, in sort of the society that we live in. It's maybe interested in family and the family that George Lucas comes from and things like that. The second trilogy, I'd say, the prequels, maybe there's a social critique, but it's sort of in spite of itself and not really well understood, I think. Like, I, I think there's interesting things being done there, but it's so overwrought, and, and I don't think it's what Lucas was intending, so it doesn't really work. And then the, th the third trilogy, I don't know if it began, the, the, the most recent, whether it began, and I'm going to actually put Rogue One in this as well, whether those films began as sort of looking at the society that we're living in, but certainly Rogue One and, 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 the, and The Last Jedi are very much speaking to the world that we're living in and sort of the way that we think about community and hope, uh, hope against despair, like those themes resonate in a different way today than they, than, certainly than they did in the 1970s. So yeah, it's, it's so interesting to have a series of eight films that have been done over 30 years, like what that is, what what they mean by things like myth or story or science fiction, they can evolve in so many ways. I just don't know another property or story like that. Star Trek, maybe, except Star Trek's kind of stayed static in a way, most mostly.
I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV. You're listening to the panel discussion, Jedi and Jesuits, a literal Fordham conversation about the Star Wars universe and its religious and spiritual influences. It was put on by the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture in partnership with Fordham Campus Ministry. Fordham's David Goodwin is the moderator. The panelists are religion news service journalist, Jack Jenkins, associate chair of graduate studies and theology professor, Catherine Reckless, and LI-based Jesuit and screenwriter, Jim McDermott. All right, so I want to gravitate back to Star Wars, and hopefully my mic will cooperate. Um, so I just want to, I would like us to explore the Jedis and the Force and how they're portrayed in the films and how they evolve over the series, through the series, and what might be some of the religious, religious or spiritual or mythological themes or underpinnings that you might see in the Jedi Order and the portrayal of the Force. Actually, can I say one last thing on the last point? You can say anything you'd like. I'm very preoccupied by that question. You know, there is one thing about the first trilogy, which I think is true of the whole saga, that is, I think, a social critique, and maybe it speaks to the Campbell point, Catherine, that you're making. Tell me what you think. That... The interesting thing about Star Wars for me as compared to, say, Star Trek is that in Star Wars, every character that you meet is somebody's favorite. It could be on screen for, like, a second, but there's someone, like, people who, some of the names today, you know, like, some of those characters are not major characters, but people are fascinated by them, right? There's something, I think, cooked into the Star Wars world that uh, everybody is somebody. Everybody is the hero of a story of a sort, whether or not you get to see all of that story or not. And that is an interesting, as compared to, say, Star Trek, which is really about a group of Western people who go places and meet people that are semi, pretty kind of vague, right? It's really the story of those mostly Western people. I don't know, does that, does that, does that resonate at all? Yeah, totally. Uh, yes, completely. I mean, I, I, have to, I will admit, I think I'm the only person on this panel who didn't grow up watching Star Wars, so I keep the Star Wars as like a young adult. And I've done my best, but I also have, like, a nine-year-old son. And so that means now that I am, like, enmeshed in a world of YouTube fanfic Star Wars theory spinoff videos. And he will come to me with wow. information and debates. And anytime I ask him, he's like, he is, like, down this rabbit hero. hole. And Isn't I cannot. Like... Exactly. I was like, you know what? So the best I can give him. Um, so maybe going back to David's question about, how do we think about the Jedi? How have the Jedi changed? And like the, the Last Jedi offers us, I think, its own meta rewrite of the whole mythology. And, and Rogue One, too, I would agree. Right? It, it sort of takes what's latent in the prequels. And you were saying this, right? The, the disappointment that we experience when, when we have the hint of Obi-Wan's, um, a good friend was was talking me through all of his deep childhood feelings about this. And I was catching up with the experience of having watched these as, an, as a young adult and not having quite the level of disappointment. But that sense of like the hint of the mystery of this order, like who are the Jedi when Obi-Wan says, you know, they, they used to rule the galaxy and bring peace for a thousand years. And you're like, what is this order? And what can they do? And who are they? And are they priests or are they warriors or are they Buddhist monk-like self-renunciating mystics? Like what, how do we understand their parallel? And then you get the prequels and you're like, oh my God, they're just like bureaucratic, <laughs> se- like bureaucratic, semi-religious 
figures who've like totally sold out and um, are completely aligned with the aims of the state and are perpetuating this war and aren't even very good at it and um, can't see anything that's happening around them. Um, and so it's so disappointing. And I think we were saying is like, but is that the beginning, right? Did Lucas know that was a critique of institutional religion or power? Or is it something that these later movies, Rogue One and The Last Jedi, right, they, they are clearly going for that, right? They're, Luke has that whole speech in The Last Jedi, right, where he basically lays that out. Like, you saw the prequels. Like, you know how bad this was. Like, um, the Jedi are the ones who brought this on us, right? They were blinded. They were sold out, right? They aligned themselves with power. They, they trained Anakin. Like, um, they didn't even see the Darth Lord rising up around them, right? All of this saga is their fault. And he's giving us right, this kind of meta-canonical revision of the whole myth. And so, I mean, I, I'm super interested in how much we think that's been there all along, right? Or how much this is the introduction, right, of a kind of maybe a new age, a new moment, right? Um, I have so many more. I have mean, literally so many more things I could say, but I'll stop. If, if you take um, Luke Skywalker on his word when he refers to the Jedi religion in The Last Jedi and refers to the books as the sacred Jedi texts, like, the Jedi Order is a religious institution, and thus, you know, the, the flaws that are exposed over the course of the prequels and now even in the new trilogy are critiques of an institutional religion, which is also, um, I don't want to go on for too long, but why I love Rogue One, because Rogue One is effectively the perspective of the laity in that context, whether it's um, Jared Imway, who, you know, is, the, is the, the blind monk, who it's never totally clear if he's Force-sensitive or not, but if he's not, that's even better um, because it's like his devotion is so pure, um, but somehow it's like Jedi-like powers just because he's that cool. And then also you have uh, Jan Erso, who you know fingers her Kyber crystal necklace in time, has and utters this like silent prayer in the movie, which is of course like a Jedi relic. Because I was thinking so much about Jin's necklace, and I was thinking I love it because it got me then this whole uh, myself ready to make a YouTube fanfic video, <laughs> thinking about. Um, how, like, I could concoct this whole story of her parents, right, t- t- in tight with the Empire, in, like, that, where there's a little flashback, there's a cocktail party, they're in deep in the power structures, and then something happens, right? They have some conversion moment. They see it for what it is, and they get out, and they go, right? They go into hiding, and they're living there, and it's her mom that gives her this kyber crystal. And you can imagine, right, that they've had maybe something like a religious conversion to, to not choose to build this weapon, to get out. But it's clear that whatever that kyber crystal necklace means to them or means in the larger structure of Jedi religion, it's, it's not been passed on to Jin. It's a, it's a relic of her mom. And she knows it has this, the practice of fingering it, the practice of like using it to center herself. It brings about, it gives her what she needs, right? It, it's efficacious, and yet she has no, what we could say in religion, no catechetical knowledge, or she has not been properly taught, like, what this means. And it really raises the question of, like, what was this religion for lay people, right? Um, you have Jedi, and you have temples, and you have priestly orders, but in what way was it, was it efficacious for ordinary people, and how is it being transformed by Jin right there in that moment, who's seeking something from it, but doesn't doesn't know what she's seeking. Which the Tycho sisters then sort of echo, don't they, in uh, The Last Jedi with the medals that they each wear. It's a different medal. It's not a, it's not a kyber crystal, but there's certainly some kind of 
it's definitely a relic of each other, but, but there's something more to it. They each look at it at kind of the key moments. Paige looks at it, right, Paige, before, uh, before she blows up uh, the, the, the destroyer. Or the, uh, yeah. And then uh, Rose looks at it at other times. You know, for me, the, the, the thing I'm thinking about as I'm listening, I, I rewatched the, the most recent two films recently, and in a way, it's more, much more clear in The Last Jedi, but I think it haunts both films. They're sort, of, they're sort of about the 18 years between when Ben Kenobi lands on Tatooine and when Luke comes of age. Like, those, that's a weird time. That, that's like the hidden life of Ben Kenobi, and it should be a very sad time in his life because he blew it. Like he, he is the embodiment of the failure, but we never see that. We never get that journey of his because it was the first movie and I'm sure that Alec Guinness had no idea or maybe even George Lucas, like what is that story? So we get the sort of the mystery and wisdom of it, but there is so much sorrow and failure and loss. And, and, and it's, it's, a, it's like a piece of the mythology that it probably helps make the, the prequel's awful. But in a way, I think The Last Jedi is the Obi-Wan movie because you get to watch someone who made the same mistakes. Luke went through a very similar journey as Ben. He trained a Jedi who then went bad, and, and not only that, who has done just terrible, terrible things, murdered people. We, the, the murders that we've seen that, that Kylo Ren has done, in a sense, are more catastrophic uh, at times, like the beginning of uh, The Force Awakens. We just like murder this whole village, and we get to watch it. Like we didn't, they didn't do that with Darth Vader. So I just, I just think that the series has been kind of haunted by where is the failure, where is the loss, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't know what the Rise of Skywalker does with that. But the Force Awakens for me, it's so satisfying because it gives us that journey. I think that's part of religion as well, uh, our religion, other religions, and, and without that sense of failure and loss, that it becomes like what you see in the prequels. It's just arrogant. And cold. Uh. I'm glad we mentioned The Last Jedi because I have a few questions uh, I'd like to <laughs> delve into. So Last Jedi, for better or worse, merited quite a bit of criticism, especially from maybe the darker regions of fandom. And the issues of canon and cancel culture come up in that discussion. So I'm just wondering if the three of you might want to explore that idea a little bit. I think it actually comes from a good place, although it can be very dark. And the good place that it comes from is that the, the audience feels like the keepers of the story. Uh, I find that fascinating because I think that's a similar thing that happens in the church. Uh, I don't want to go too far off the, off the Star Wars uh, conversation we've been having, but you know, if I look at some of, the, some of the critiques of Pope Francis, what's really going on there? There's certainly a lot of things going on there, but one of them might be people saying, You've, this isn't the church. Like, you've, you've broken the canon. This isn't the story. You're telling some other story. Like, that, that same critique, I think you can turn back around with either the church or with Star Wars. I think cancel culture gets dismissed too readily in some ways because the, the fans do have a role to play. They're sort of the, they're the keepers of the story, and if it's, if it's breaking the rules, I think they have a responsibility in some way to say that to the, to the, to the author, to the creators. I don't know. I was, I'm, I'm among those people who I, when I'm at a table with people talking about The Last Jedi, I make everyone mad because my, my disposition is that like I had problems with the film, but I loved all of the ideas. So it's like I think Luke absolutely should be a curmudgeon. I hope that Ray's parents came from nothing. I hope she like has zero parentage of like you know Skywalker blood, um, like all these things that made all these other people hurt. Like I was like, 
I'm on board with that. I just felt like there should have been like slightly less time in a casino planet. Like that was basically my <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But the but but I do think you know there there is an, but there is a difficulty because the you know the fact that you're that you're raising a child with this movie is a reminder to all of us that like Star Wars this movie is old but it was made for children. You know what I mean? Like it is it is a myth that you can enjoy it people of all ages, but it, it doesn't necessarily age with you. Whereas movies like Rogue One and Solo, which is an underrated film by the way. Um, Agreed. The, the those those are kind of like I've kind of seen Disney being like, we're still gonna make the, the trilogy where like kids can enjoy this. You adults, you can go watch everyone die. You know what I mean? Like you can enjoy those sorts of more adult narratives. And I think that's an interesting thing about Star Wars that's not the same with um, a lot of other narratives is that they they have at some level a Star Wars can't age with you. Like there's certain elements that the narrative needs to be able to appeal to a generation, um, you know, at, at, at its very core at a, at a young age. I, I would agree and echo all of those things that you all said. I think maybe. One thing to say is that, um, I mean, I think we agree pretty strongly about all of our general takes on The Last Jedi. I really loved it. Um, and actually, I want to make a pitch for the Casino Planet sideline because <laughs> to me, um, to me actually, like where the myth actually changed for me was not Luke. Like Luke was like trying to, trying to wrap up, the, I mean, just basically trying to gather the pieces that had been scattered and and give us the loss and the doubt and the suffering internal to this and then and then help us interpret the arc that we had already seen from the prequels on. But the, where the myth changed for me is when Poe Dameron is looking out the window watching all of those cruisers be shot out of the sky and he realizes and we realize that that old model of like throw caution to the wind, head out on the daring mission, like, the, the hero knows when to say no to order and break the rules and just be an individual hero actually has led to all of that death. Their, their mission was completely unsuccessful, and because they were captured and, and accidentally gave up the plan, right, the, um, all of the good guys are killed. And right, if they had just stayed put and acted as a collective, the plan might have worked. And so to me, that was where the myth changed, was actually less in Luke and actually in like suggesting that that whole model of individual hero, like rogue pilot flies in and takes out the Death Star in one dramatic shot, like is not the model that can be like the, the model for the resistance or the rebellion for, um, for all, of its, right, all of its action. And that's, that's actually why I loved it. You, I needed those digressions which we were like, oh, are we just on one of those fun lark rides? And this is a just, and then you're like, no, this is going to turn out to be a horrible, tragic mistake. It's not going to save anybody or anything. Um, I mean, actually, to, the, to that point, well, first of all, I think Poe Dameron may be the real villain of The Last Jedi mm -hmm. because he's responsible for the deaths at the beginning and at the end. Mm -hmm. there's, there's only like 20 people left, and it's because <laughs> he, he, he had all the... Uh, He's, at the beginning, all those ships are destroyed, and at the end, all those people get shot down before they reach the planet. And that's because of the plan. I'm not a fan of Podamron. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, I had never thought of this until you were talking, Kevin, but uh, uh, Canto Bight, the casino planet, that's where we start talking about sort of the social injustice issues. That's where we find out that Rose was a slave, uh, and, and we meet those three slave kids, 
And, and, and it's also where we meet the, the thief whose name I can never remember, the hacker. DJ. DJ, sorry. Uh, who, uh, who kind of brings the question alive, like, this side that you support, they're buying weapons too, and they're buying weapons from these people who are living life, you know, living high on the, high on the hog. Like, those are con concepts that I don't think I've ever seen in a Star Wars film before, that sort of social critique. And I, I, I don't know, I don't know where you take that in The Rise of Skywalker, but I thought it was very, very interesting. Yeah, I guess it's not so bad. <laughs> It goes on a long time. No, I mean, I, it really, for me, it's more about duration. And I, but I mean, again, the parts that I'm like, why are they riding giant furry things? And the kid behind me, beside me is like loving it. So I'm like, that's why. Um, <laughs> but, the, but also, like, but I will say, uh, I thought that was really interesting, too, the way they kind of critique, um, in a way that's accessible to a broad audience um, kind of class. And it, that comes up in Solo as well in a really strong way. Like, they deal with class a lot in Solo. Um, but that's, again, more for an audience like myself. So um, I'd like to thank our panelists, Jack Jenkins, Captain Reckless, and Jim McDermott for joining us tonight. Jedi and Jesuits was part of the Ignatian Spirituality Series in partnership with Fordham Campus Ministry. The Center on Religion and Culture hosts public events throughout the year. More information about these events can be found on the Center on Religion and Culture's website. Tune in next week for Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon.